We're in uh, Acts chapter 6. So you can follow along up here. Um, And this is a continuation of what Pastor Sam was talking to us about last week. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let me pray for us. Dear God, we just thank you so much for giving us this time. And we want to be faithful to you. We want to follow you. But we also want to know uh, what the cost is and to count the cost. And as we sit here and hear about your word and as we engage with your spirit and your presence, I pray that you would move our heart to get our priorities right so that we can be a church that obeys you in the little things and in the big things, that our primary goal, our overriding desire is to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so one of the most deeply ingrained assumptions you have about life and that I have about life is if you do the right thing, life will get better or life will get easier. When I was a kid, uh, my mom, uh, there was four of us, uh, all within like a seven-year age range. So my mom was not very um, happy (laughs) at the time, I guess you could say. So she invited my grandma and grandpa to come live with us. And we did not uh, get along that well, but one of the areas that we got along really well was she always told these great stories. And one of the stories she told is this old Korean like nursery book story about two brothers named Hungbu and Norbu, right? So this is an old story. And what happens is these two brothers grow up in a rich family. They're married. And then all of a sudden their rich father dies. And the older brother is kind of a jerk. So he kicks out the younger brother and says, get out of here. Take your kids. Take your wife. Leave this place. And the younger brother just goes out and has to start begging for food. And all of a sudden, he gets so hungry that he returns to his older brother's house. And as he's at his older brother's house, um, the older brother's wife hits him with a spoon of rice across the face. But he's so hungry that he peels the rice off of his face and starts eating it. And he recognizes, oh, I can give this food to my kids. So he asks the wife to hit him again. She hits him again. He grabs the rice, and then he takes it home to feed his kids. Now, on the way... He's walking along thinking about, man, what am I going to do with my life? And he sees a little bird. And this little bird has a broken leg. And even though he's poor, he has nothing, he goes, I'm going to take care of this little bird. So he grabs the little bird, binds up the leg, and after a couple days, the bird is able to fly off with his family, and this younger brother feels good about himself. Well, lo and behold, three days later, the bird comes back with a pumpkin seed. And I don't know how they communicated, but he basically said, plant this pumpkin seed. (laughs) So (laughs) the younger brother goes, got it. I will plant this pumpkin seed. This will solve all of my problems. It will grow into something that we can eat. He plants this pumpkin seed. It grows to be the size of a house. And when he cracks it open, it's not pumpkin seed meat. 
It is treasures and jewels and all kinds of wonderful things. And the lesson of the story is, if you do right by the birds, then your life will get better. If you do the right thing, everything will get better. And this um, thinking is kind of ingrained in the way that we live our life. If I eat healthy and if I exercise and I do the stuff the doctor told me to do, I will live a long and healthy life. And this also kind of gets ingrained in our relationship with God. Um, You know, this doesn't happen so much anymore, but when I was younger, I used to have like a big test or something in college. I go, okay, I need God on my side this day. So I'll wake up early, I'll read the Bible, I'll pray, (laughs) I'll cross my fingers, do my best not to sin today. And if I do that, then I'll get a much better grade this time around than the other time around. And if you think about it, big picture, people come to God for all kinds of reasons. They have addiction, they have brokenness in their relationship, they're struggling with something. And their expectation is, if I do the right thing, which is to come to God with all this stuff that's going on in my life, then my life should get better. But the reality is, oftentimes you do the right thing or you do things the correct way and your life doesn't get better, it actually gets worse. Uh, It reminds me of a scene in the movie Swingers where you're playing blackjack. If you get an 11, you're supposed to double down because that's your best chance of getting 21. The main character doubles down and then he goes bankrupt. Or I think about like when you're driving um, on a highway and you see that you have to get off on the exit to the right and there's a line of cars that are piled up like a mile back, and you know the right thing to do is get into the right lane. But if you do that, you end up spending 20 minutes there, and then when you get to the front, you notice people have cut the entire line and just scooped right in into the front, and you go, what's the point of living the right way? And, you know, I'm so, like, um, without principle as far as this goes. When I'm in the front and I've been sitting there for a while, I get mad at cars that do that. But when I'm in a rush, I just cut in front and Jen goes like, you have no consistency. I go, no, 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 I'm always for myself. Whatever, like, whatever benefits me, I'll do. So you do the right thing and things get worse. Or I don't know if you've had this experience where like you try to do something amateurishly, like you shoot a basketball or you go to a driving range with your friends and you just hit the golf ball, you know, on your own. And someone goes, oh, 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 let me show you the correct way to do it. And you go, okay, show me the correct way to do it. And on your own, you could drive the ball like 150 yards, but with the correct way, it only goes like 50 yards. You're like, what's the deal here? <laughs> like, you said this is supposed to correct the way that things are supposed to go. And this is what you notice in your relationship with God. Sometimes things are going the exact way they should be going, and you do the right thing, but instead of things getting better, they actually get worse. And so right now, we're in the Christmas season, And a lot of the imagery around Christmas celebrates Jesus coming as a little child, the shepherds coming, the angels coming, everybody worshiping God. But when you look at the Gospels, especially the book of Matthew, you notice this is not always the way things go. Jesus came into a context where there was already a king, King Herod. And when he heard that there was a new king that had just been born, he did not accept the news willingly. He didn't say, oh, let me step aside and let this baby king come forward. What did he do? He slaughtered every male child in Bethlehem under the year of two. This also happened with Moses. Moses had heard a calling in the desert, in the burning bush, saying, go, set my people free. He goes, I don't want to. And God says, no, I will send your brother who will speak for you. He goes, I still don't want to. And then God said, you're making me mad. Now go. And he goes. And he goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And he obeyed God. And your expectation is, okay, he obeyed God. Pharaoh should listen. What happens? Pharaoh says, now I'm going to be even harsher against the Israelites because you will not give up. 
Not only do they have to make their bricks, they also have to collect the straw to make their bricks, and I will not reduce their workload. Even within Christianity, even within the context of religion, when you do the right thing, it's not that our lives get easier or better. Oftentimes, our life gets even worse or harder. So last week, Pastor Sam talked about Stephen and his six buddies, and they were chosen as deacons to feed Greek-speaking widows. And when you look at his life and when you look at what he's doing throughout this passage, you notice that Stephen is the type of person who is doing everything right. He spends his life feeding hungry widows. In verse 8, it tells us he does works of mercy, and he does more than that. He does signs and wonders. And when you hear about what a great person Stephen is, you would expect the next couple chapters to talk about some kind of fruitfulness, some kind of blessing, some kind of way the church is expanding and growing. But what you find out instead is the exact opposite thing happens. Stephen does everything right, and the very next thing that happens are people rise up from his midst and start to oppose him and accuse him falsely. Sometimes you do the right thing and your life doesn't get better. It gets worse. So you know that you're in a long-term relationship. You know you got problems and you finally get the guts to say, hey, this is the problem with you and I. And instead of them going, you're right. I always knew that about myself. I'll work on it. They go, how dare you? (laughs) And then they pull out their list and your relationship ends up getting worse. Sometimes you know that you made a mistake at work and you're not even sure if anybody's going to catch it, but you feel like the right thing to do is to confess and say, hey, I made this mistake. And instead of getting rewarded for it like you do in middle school, you get punished for it. You go, don't ever make that mistake again. We will not trust you. And Stephen feeds Greek-speaking widows and does signs and wonders and is about to be martyred for it, which we find out later. And the big question is why? Why all of this opposition? for doing something so altruistic and good. The first reason we have is competition. In verse 9, it tells us that opposition started with people from the synagogue in Jerusalem. And nowadays, when we think about the word synagogue, most of us think that it's the Jewish version of a church. But back in the ancient world, the synagogue was much more than that. It was a community center. It was a courtroom. It was a place of political activism. They had rooms for people that were visiting from out of town that they could sleep there. And it was also the place that people would come and donate their funds and widows could come and receive welfare. And so Stephen and his six friends are in direct competition with the type of activity that usually happens at a synagogue. And what you see is oftentimes the most bitter competition and strife comes between people who overlap so much. I don't know if you're a fan of like anime, for example, but uh, Dragon Ball Z, um, Goku and Vegeta are basically as alike as you can get, but they hate each other. You find out like Coke and Pepsi, Burger King and McDonald's. Sometimes these companies that basically do the exact same thing are at odds with one another. And in a weird way, the church is also not immune from this. Um, After I graduated from college, I went with a group of people to plant a church in Georgia, and we tried to start a student group um, at Emory University and Georgia Tech, and everybody was so nice to us, except um, the other Christian groups (laughs) and the other religious leaders. And we were competing, to a certain extent, with with their churches and what they were doing, and so they felt threatened. The church is also not immune to this, and the people at the synagogue must have felt like, oh, I don't like what Stephen and these guys are doing. They're taking power and influence away from us. But that's not all that we know about these people. The other thing that we learn about them is they are not natives of Jerusalem, but they are Greek-speaking Jews from all over the Roman Empire, 
even going as far as Asia. And they were religiously and ethnically Jewish, but culturally they were Greek. And as Sam mentioned last week, it's very similar to what it feels like to be a second generation immigrant here. And I don't often think about the fact that uh, I'm Korean, which I am, but every now and again, it'll pop up. So over the last couple weeks, um, I've been watching a lot of soccer and I don't know anything about soccer. I don't follow anything about soccer. I don't know any of the players' names, but when the second goal went in against Portugal, and the game ended and the players started crying, I started tearing up. <laughs> I, I was like, is that good? Is that not good? There's some part of my identity where I was like, oh, these, this is kind of wrapped up in who I am. And, you know, I mentioned this a couple of times. I spent so much time learning all these languages for a PhD. I still can't speak Korean for the life of me, but I still identify as a Korean and I find my ways to do that. It's what I eat. It's traditions that I keep. It's making sure that on his 100th day, Otis will have a nice little celebration. On his one-year-old birthday, he'll get to pick his destiny. I hope he picks the money, but that's never happened for us before. It's these little traditions. And when somebody starts to kind of mess around with those traditions, I feel a little threatened because when you're in a dual situation like that, your identity is tenuous. You don't really belong here. And if you've ever gone to the country of origin, you don't really belong there either. They can tell right away just from the way that I walk that, oh, this guy is not one of us. Um, and so it's not um, ununderstandable. Like when I see like pictures of Britney Spears wearing like a traditional Korean gown or when uh, Shake Shack has a Korean fried chicken sandwich, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit. I'm kind of like, that's my dress. That's my <laughs> Korean chicken sandwich. And these Synagogue leaders must have felt the same way. Stephen is doing something that is touching the very core of our identity. As Greek-speaking Jews, they had decided that it's not food and it's not the traditions, it's Moses' law and the temple that are going to determine who I am. And when Stephen started ministering in the name of Christ, there was a threat there. This guy is saying something about how I'm arranging my life and I don't like it. And this is a good time to just pause and say what the gospel is. The gospel is not like some fortune cookie wisdom that you can just insert into people's life and say, oh, this should help you out. It's not like, oh, let me tell you about this great deal for Black Friday or some kind of life hack. The gospel is a message that touches to the deepest part of who we are. And the message of it is inherently offensive to a lot of people. It's basically telling you all the things that you've tried to use to cover up your inadequacy, all the ways that you tried to construct your identity, whether even they're good things based off of success, based off of your family, based off of your culture, based off of your activism. If those things do not take root in Jesus Christ, there is a faulty foundation there and it will crumble. And when you start living out the truth of the gospel, it's reasonable to expect that people will take offense because you're not just telling them, oh, here's some new medicine that's out there. You're telling them something about the core of who they are. And this is exactly what happened with Stephen. In his signs, in his wonders, in his mercy, in his preaching, he is showing the Greek-speaking Jews there's something wrong and something lacking about the way that they've constructed their life. Stephen does the right thing, and instead of life getting easier for him, it gets a little bit harder. So why does he keep going? 
This is the question. If life is just going to get harder when we do the right thing, why persist in doing the right thing at all? Why not just cut to the front of the line in traffic? Why not just eat whatever you want because you never know what's going to happen? Now, in general, um, I am not the type of person who is like, uh, let's suffer for the sake of suffering. Like, this is the kind of person I am. Like, after I'm done preaching here, I'm going to go home and I'm going to sit on this corner of my couch. And I'll lay there and I'll put a blanket on top of me. And if I happen to have forgotten something, I will not get up and get it. I will wait till Jen or Arlo are in that vicinity. And I go, oh, um, can you hand me my phone? <laughs> can you get me a drink? Can you help me here? This is the type of person that I am, right? I, I don't like to suffer for the sake of suffering. And I think for a while, uh, a lot of churches had that kind of message. If you want to be a true Christian, you've got to suffer. You've got to wake up early in the morning. You've got to sleep on the ground. You can't have nice things. I'm not about that at all. If I can be comfortable, God, let me be comfortable. That's what I want. And so when I see people chasing after suffering, I always think like, oh, are they mentally unbalanced? <laughs> is there something wrong with them? So let's check out Stephen. Is he mentally unbalanced? What do we know about him? We know he's full of grace. We know he's full of power. We know he's full of wisdom, and we know he's full of faith. We know that he has a good reputation amongst the people. We know that he doesn't spend his life in this self-destructive cycle so that when an opportunity to die comes up, he's like, I'll take it. I got nothing to live for. He spends his life very fulfilled, reaching out to widows who are in need of help. So he is a well-adjusted, great, wonderful type of person, and yet he chases after this thing to the point of death. And so the question is, why? What drives him? There's a small detail that shows up here that is never mentioned for pretty much any of the New Testament figures that we ever encounter, and it's in verse 15. In verse 15, it says that everybody who accused Stephen looked at his face and saw that he had the face of an angel. What a description to have <laughs> written about you. This guy had the face of an angel. Now, there's a couple times where people's faces get transformed in the Bible. Moses, when he had spent time in the presence of God, his face became illuminated, bright, shining white, so that when he had to go back down into the mountain, he had to cover his face so that is not to scare the people. You see this again with Jesus. He's on the mountain of transfiguration. Moses and Elijah show up, and all of a sudden, his clothes turn the color of the sun, and his face shines brightly, and everybody finally recognizes who he is. And so what does this transformation of Stephen's face represent? It represents that he is close to God, and that God is pleased with him. So what drives Stephen in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sure persecution, and as we'll find out later, in the midst of martyrdom. The thing that Stephen knows is this. There's something more important than a better life, than an easy life, than a comfortable life. The most important thing is to live a life of obedience to God so that one day we'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That idea, that goal, that understanding of what life is about shows that of course, we don't run into suffering, but we don't avoid it either. Our life is not about just getting the easiest possible outcome. Our life is about making sure God is pleased with the way that we've lived. I think like, mm, I don't know, it's probably been like five years, but for the last like five years, every conversation Jen and I have is like, when is our life going to get easier? <laughs> when is it going to get better? Um, 
maybe if we get different jobs and make more money, then life will get better. Maybe if we move out to the suburbs in Westchester, we will be happy. <laughs> maybe when we retire, life will get better. And this idea like, God, when is life going to get easier, drives so much of the way that we think about our lives, drives so much of the decisions that we're trying to make. How can we make our life easier? But the reality is, even if you try to do the right things, you might not even get the result that you're looking for. You can try to live a healthy life, you can try to diet and exercise, but you never know what diagnosis awaits in the future. You can save up all of your money as best as you can, but you can't predict that right as you're about to retire, a recession hits, and there goes half of your savings. Even like with kids, it's so interesting. Like, you know, my dad, when he came home from work, would like, um, like just sit down at the computer, like have a bunch of beer, play Minesweeper for hours, <laughs> and then every like six days get mad at us and go, clean the house, right? So I was like, okay, when I'm a dad, I'm going to like invest into my kids. I'm going to like do all this other stuff. But the reality is like you spend all that time doing that, and when they grow up, maybe half the time they're not going to want to spend time with you. I see that with my uh, kids that I teach, probably right around Bradley's age, right around like sixth or seventh grade. I'm like, do you guys like hang out with your parents? Like, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm like, why not? They're like, they always tell me what to do. And I'm like, oh my goodness, it starts so early. And so it's like, why am I pouring out all of my life to try to be like this great dad when at the end of the day, they're going to be like, I don't want to spend time with you when I get older. And of course, you know the reason. That's not the reason you're doing it. You're doing it so they become a good person. All this is to say, you can try to spend all of your energy and effort doing the right thing. But if you expect that your life is going to get easier or better as a result, that is the wrong expectation according to this passage. When you do the right thing, you don't know how it's going to turn out. It's a matter of faith. Sometimes you'll do the right thing, people will celebrate you for it. Sometimes you'll do the right thing and persecution will rise. Last week, Pastor Sam gently but clearly um, challenged and encouraged our church to make mercy a bigger part of what we do. And some of us probably heard that and were like, okay, I want to try to be more involved in the city and do things like that. But if your expectation is, okay, I'm going to do this thing and all of a sudden God is going to make my life easier and better, this passage is teaching you that is the wrong expectation. You'll do the right thing and life actually might get harder and more difficult. So why do it? You do it because as a Christian, as a follower of God, your main goal is not to get a comfortable life or an easier life. Your main goal is when you get to heaven, will you live your life in such a way where the thing that you want to hear most is, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Yeah, I mean, I wish life would get easier. <laughs> but um, that's never guaranteed, and we don't know if that's going to happen. But what we know is if we live a life of faith, if we put God first, he sees and he is pleased, regardless of whether life gets harder or life gets better. We need to switch our priorities from just making sure our life is comfortable, our life is marginally better, and we need to get to a place where we say, God, the most important thing is, am I pleasing you? Am I following you? Am I obeying you? As a church, it's also something we need to do. We cannot just settle for doing things the way that they are, but we have to get to a place where we're in prayer, we're in the Spirit, and we're hearing the living voice of God saying, go here, do this, pray for this person, 
ask for more power. So what I want to do is I just want to spend a couple minutes uh, praying for yourselves, praying for our church. God, help us to be a church who does not put comfort or ease ahead of obedience. Whatever the cost that comes from obeying you, help us to accept it, knowing that that is the most important thing. And after we pray like that for a little bit, uh, we'll uh, continue on with some worship.